Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 279, who wished all for the best. Before I start a very quick bit of advertising for a friend, TudorCon is being organised by Heather Tesco of the Renaissance English History Podcast. It's on the 18th to the 20th of October and is a fest of Tudor. There will be three days of lectures, music, dancing, feasts, all that kind of stuff. Or you can get a digital ticket and just hear the lectures. To find out more, go to englandcast.com forward slash TudorCom 2019 or go to my website where I've put a link. If you do decide to go, when you book, make sure to use a special code that I've been given, which will give you a 10% discount. That code is SHED, S-H-E-D, SHED. Okay, last time we heard about how a fortuitous doomed rebellion gave Mary and Philip the leeway to achieve the very thing the Royal Council and Parliament had always feared, that through this marriage, England would be dragged into a war which was neither in her interest nor one that she could afford. But look, there'd been a couple of early successes, which was great, although since epidemic disease stalked the land, this probably wasn't the main interest of most people. The Duke of Guise, commander of the French forces, had his bead little eye on the shiny jewel in England's crown, Calais. Although the fortress was in a rather dilapidated condition, English sea power meant it could be quickly resupplied, and was so very difficult to take. So, surprise was very important, 
and finding a way of stopping that last-minute resupply. That was critical in taking Calais. So, in November and December 1557, French forces filtered into the Picardy region around the Pale of Calais like the agents of Sauron filtering into Lothlorien, and they spread misinformation to the commander of the English garrison, Lord Wentworth. That misinformation had convinced Wentworth as late as the 22nd of December that the French were in no position to do anything, and everybody could concentrate on the wassailing and have a good time for Christmas. But by the 27th of December, the council at Calais finally realised they'd been had. They sent an urgent request for assistance to both the Royal Council in London and to Philip in the Low Countries. Philip dispatched 200 gunmen. The Earl of Rutland ran around like a blue-arsed fly after receiving the orders on the 29th of December. But look, getting an army together takes time. Nonetheless, by the 2nd of January, he had set sail. And as long as Wentworth could just defend the walls for only a few days, everything would be fine, since the English controlled the sea and Fort Ribon at the mouth of the harbour controlled access from the sea. And handily, Fort Ribon was protected by the marshes. The 1st of January 1558 was very cold. Freezing cold, in fact. So freezing cold that the marshes were frozen solid. And so across the frozen marshes came Guise's forces and on the 2nd of January, to his horror, Wentworth saw guns in front of Fort Ribon and 27,000 soldiers were investing Calais. As Rutland arrived with his relief force on the 3rd of January, the welcome he received from Fort Ribon was the gunfire not of salute but of war. He was blocked. There was no way into the harbour. Calais was overwhelmed within a week and the nearby castles of Ham and Guine didn't take much longer, under-garrisoned and simply overrun, although Guine managed to hold out until the 21st of January. The French could not have been more delighted. They recovered three months' supply of food, a whopping 300 guns, and the last tiny vestige of French humiliation from the Hundred Years' War had been wiped from the shoe of French pride. The 5,000 inhabitants of the town were sent home and turfed out, and the French set about reincorporating the Pale of Calais into France. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, the fall of Calais was a jolly good thing, capital G, capital T. It was an anachronistic survival of the old dynastic kingdoms and empires, and kept dragging English monarchs back to ancient glories and continental involvement, when it would be the Atlantic where the future lay. Of course, no one knew that at the time, though the very first tiny little seeds were there. The Company of Merchant Adventurers to New Lands had been founded in 1551 by a group that included John Cabot's son, Sebastian Cabot. They started off by looking for a northeast passage to China, and most of their early journeys revealed nothing. But one of their number, Richard Chancellor, made it all the way to Russia and travelled overland to Moscow to his, and indeed the Tsar's, apparent delight. He came back clutching letters from the Tsar, inviting English traders and promising trade privileges. And in 1555, the company was recast with a charter from Mary and began to establish trading links. Now, I'm not saying that England's future lay in Russia, but it did lie in exploration and trade, not in continental wars. Discuss. But look, this is all looking at history backwards. 
In January 1558, the news was received with universal gloom, and disembarking English families from Calais cannot have helped lighten the mood, a bit like the defeated Norman garrisons coming home in 1450. Blame went flying around. Unfair blame at Philip for military failure, since it really wasn't his fault. Totally fair blame for Philip for vitulling licences for Calais, all of which had gone to Flemings, not English. But look, hated or loathe it, none of this helped Mary's reputation, either for good governance or for luck. Mary, of course, was very famously gutted, and according to John Fox, would later declare, When I am dead and opened, you will find Calais lying on my heart. She, Philip and the Count of Feria, Philip's representative in England now, also knew exactly where the real blame lay. Calais was clearly a nest of Protestant traitors. Wentworth was the chief traitor, and unsurprisingly Wentworth's feet hardly touched the floor before the rest of him ended up in the slammer. In Rome, a Spanish cardinal wrote, The governor of Calais was a great heretic, like those who were with him there. So I am not surprised at its fall. Philip immediately demanded that a plan be put together to recapture the town. The royal council immediately demanded that a plan not be put together, thank you very much. They estimated the army required would cost £170,000, money they didn't have. They dourly declined to waste money on reclaiming a town which some of them considered a waste of space and hideously expensive anyway. And even without that, the war was costing an arm and a leg and after a few months the national debt was rising like a demented phoenix from its pre-war level of 100,000 to 300,000 pounds. Ferrier, meanwhile, was contemptuous of the council. I am at my wit's end with these people, he groaned. But the council continued to see plenty of evidence that Philip gave not a tinker's curse for English interests, and you know how cheap is the curse of a tinker. In February, Philip ordered Mary's household to raise an army of 3,000 German mercenaries to defend the Scottish border from the French. This was a need the Royal Council thoroughly agreed with. The work was done, the mercenaries paid £2,000 pricey, but necessary, so right you are, sir. Then in April, Philip demanded them for use in the war in the Low Countries, and they were withdrawn from the tawdry business of defending England and sent to the coast to take ship for the Low Countries. But then, just to add insult to injury, when they arrived, Philip decided, oh, don't need you anymore, and disbanded the whole jolly lot of them. The cheek of it. But there's more. He then sent a self-congratulatory letter to the council saying, well done me, I've saved you a bunch of money there by disbanding them. Mary was buoyed for a while, though, by the knowledge that she was pregnant. She kept the good news under her hat until January, when she was absolutely certain and then told Philip the tidings of great joy and spread the news around the court. I am sorry to say that her news this time was received with widespread scepticism right from the off. Philip wrote to Paul to say how happy he was, and wrote to Faria to find out if the news had any truth to it. Faria thought not. He wrote to Philip that Mary was making herself believe that she is with child, though she does not own up to it. Nonetheless, in March 1558, Mary made her will, once more reflecting the dangers of childbirth. Although I be at present in good health, yet foreseeing the great danger by which God's ordinance remained to all women in the travail of children. If she died, then the throne would of course go to her child if it survived, 
while Philip would become guardian and regent. But it was not long before Mary was once again forced to accept it would not be so, and from May the reports of her condition were resolutely gloomy. Faria described how She sleeps badly, she is weak, she suffers from melancholy, and her indisposition results in business being handled more slowly than it need be. A favourite Tudor analogy of the state was the state as a body, with each part dependent on the other. And maybe it was especially so in 1558, because Mary's decline and the consistently bad news seemed to affect other walks of life too. Since the fall of Calais, not one-third as many Englishmen go to Mass as went before. Though that's a biased report in all probability, Ferrier thought Poole was on the wrong track in his religious reform and therefore was in the business of dissing him. But disease was raging, people were dying, the Queen had no heir, England had been humiliated by her traditional enemy, God had clearly changed their nationality and was no longer English. It did not help Mary's mood that her hated sister was full of beans. In February, Elizabeth came to Somerset House in London with a great company of lords and noblemen and noblewomen. And although she would not stay long, all eyes turned to the person that looked increasingly like the future, despite the fact that Mary had not confirmed her as her heir. Certainly, one William Cecil was reading the runes. Although tradition has it that Cecil retired to his estates when Mary became queen, this isn't really the case. Our William Cecil was what is known commonly as an operator. He was often in London, working his contacts, keeping his connections live, meeting with his friend Reginald Poole, sticking a thermometer in the bottom of state and taking the temperature. And in February 1558, he took the opportunity of Elizabeth's visit to go and see her. Now, he had an excuse. He was the royal surveyor of her estates and so could plead a business meeting, which would also mean expenses and biscuits. And it might be that this is all that that meeting was about. But certainly, Cecil made sure that Elizabeth knew something of him and knew something of his talents. It does not hurt to sing your own praises just a little now and again. After all, if you don't, who will? The war, meanwhile ground on with no decisive outcomes, but with plenty of decisive costs, and with little satisfaction from Philip for the English role. In fact, the indications are that Philip was simply losing interest now. He'd not been able to become the king he felt his position and honour warranted, and no longer seemed now to concerned to try. The pensions that he was supposed to be paying his supporters on the Royal Council were months late. Ferrier was recalled to the Low Countries, and a lower status diplomat replaced him. Philip clearly did not think there was much likely to happen any time soon, though before he left, Ferrer did go and visit Elizabeth. Then in August, Mary caught a fever, and everyone was worried she was badly ill, but she recovered, only for her to fall ill again in October. And by the 29th of October 1558, the Venetian ambassador reported that the Queen was grievously ill and her life in danger. Suddenly, Philip began to realise that in fact England was about to get dangerously interesting, and back came Faria once more. Philip's diplomatic situation had worsened because the marriage between Mary Queen of Scots and Francis the Dauphin of France had been formally celebrated in April 1558. Now, 
Everyone had known it was going to happen, but still, having it actually happen gave reality more force. Furrier visited Elizabeth again, and he sought assurances that their friendship would continue. He suggested the old idea of marriage again. Elizabeth was already beginning to be in her element. She thanked Philip. She was full of reassurance and ruthlessly dismissed the very idea of marriage, something she'd get used to. So, Philip did not come home to be at his wife's side. Obviously, there are extenuating circumstances. He probably could not know for sure that Mary was on the point of death. But to be more brutal, Philip made a calculation. If he was in England when Mary died, he would be honour-bound to make a pitch for the throne, and he probably wasn't going to win that one, which would be a reputational nightmare. And Philip was a very proud man, very conscious of his status and honour. He was not the kind of aristocrat that wears jumpers with holes in the elbows. The reverse posh thing didn't work back then. Also, he was now involved in another round of peace negotiations with France, so it was a busy time. There was no time for dying wives. And on the 21st of September, 1558, Philip, and indeed we, get to say goodbye to a constant companion here on the History of England. I speak of Charles V, once lord of a fair proportion of Christendom, now living alone in a secluded monastery. I say living alone, except for teams of courtiers and servants, of course. The walls of his room were reputed to be hung with clocks, a reminder of the lack of free time available for a ruler of a fair proportion of Christendom. And his funeral had been meticulously planned by him. After all, it would not be any old ordinary affair. This is the ex-ruler of a fair proportion of Christendom we're talking about here. So they'd all been through the full ceremony, including Charles hopping into the box, lying there for a while before rising from the theatre of death, as it were. Anyway, he'd then contracted malaria, probably, and on 21st of September he died. He seems to have been with us for about half a million years, but in fact, he's only 58. I would have thought this news must have affected Mary deeply. Charles had been a surrogate father to her, and putting aside whether or not the relationship had become a little bit weird when Mary became queen, he had been a genuine support for someone who'd felt very exposed and very alone through her life. His death cannot have helped, therefore, and Mary was now badly ill. By November, the council were laying eggs about the succession, and as Mary faded, the line became, look, we know you're going to be fine, but just theoretically speaking, could you tell us who would be monarch in the extremely unlikely event that you croak? On the 6th of November, Mary bowed to the inevitable and made another will. And finally, she consented to make Elizabeth her heir, though she couldn't bring herself to actually use Elizabeth's name even now. Mary's closest counsellors were sent to Elizabeth to give her the news and give Mary's last wishes to her, that Elizabeth pay her debts and, of course, keep the realm Catholic. Elizabeth would take not a blind bit of notice of any of Mary's wishes. And meanwhile, in the brutal but entirely understandable way these things happen, more and more of the courtiers that would normally have walked the corridors of Mary's palace shuffled off and started walking the galleries of Hatfield instead, where the future was living. By the 14th of November, Fourier was convinced that Mary was just about to die, and he wrote to Philip that each hour I think they will come to inform me of her death. So rapidly does her condition deteriorate from day to the next. Mary was no longer speaking of Philip. Her mind had moved on 
to visions of angels like little children. It is at this time that Fox reported her famous last words that Calais would be found written on her heart. On the 16th of November, she received the last rites, and the following morning, the 17th, between five and six in the morning, she died. And hours later, Lord Chancellor Nicholas Heath announced her death to Parliament. Historian Tracy Borman relates that among her personal effects that Mary left was a book of prayers, which had a page devoted to intercessions for expectant mothers. It was stained with tears. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When the news reached Philip, he wrote, The Queen, my wife, is dead. I felt a reasonable regret. Now, I imagine it loses a little in translation and was not quite that callous. But the truth is, of course, he was but 31 and was now free to marry again and hopefully produce more heirs. He asked Faria to make sure that he snaffled the jewels Mary had promised him in her will, and then he moved on. He had decided there was nothing left for him in England, and he was probably correct in that. Elizabeth's position was pretty unassailable. On the very same day that Mary died, Reginald Poole also lay dying. His position had become pretty much impossible. In Italy, the Inquisition had been digging into the lives of his colleagues in Rome, and Pope Paul's malice grew daily. Paul's refusal to conduct any English business at all would have a material effect in the next reign, since it meant that several bishoprics were left unfilled, unappointed, leaving the ranks of the Marian bishops denuded for the fight ahead. Poole was strongly opposed to Philip's plans for Elizabeth's succession, and he tried hard to persuade him against it. He knew what Elizabeth meant for his beloved Reformation, which was, he believed, working, slowly but working. But he could not persuade Philip, and in the end was himself persuaded there was nothing he could do. Reginald Poole died literally hours after Mary, hours after the partner in their great enterprise, the partner he'd done so much to support. He would not have known that Mary and his death brought the burnings to an absolute and immediate stop. Tragically, neither's death was early enough to save the ten people burned to death that very month in Ipswich, Canterbury and Barry St Edmunds. The contemporary response to Mary's death was mixed. There were plenty close to her who were deeply upset at her loss. To those close to her, Mary often engendered very deep loyalty, and in return, she herself gave loyalty freely. At her funeral, the Bishop of Winchester took a stand on comparing Mary to Elizabeth, which resulted in Elizabeth separating him for a while from his liberty. Her mourners did not include one of those who should have been the most appreciative. Pope Paul IV was glad to see her go and looked forward to much improvement under Elizabeth. For others, it was a bit of a collective sigh of relief. The city of York released a Protestant tirade, but even that mourned the death of a lady that of her own inclination wished all for the best. It reached back into a long tradition of blaming those around the monarch 
rather than the monarch themselves, and in this case, they blamed the Catholic clergy. The author picked up on a constant grumble that she loved another nation more than her own, that she put out Englishmen from the government. Nor actually was this just a Protestant refrain. It was just as common amongst Catholics as well in England. And then, of course, there was John Fox. Fox reserved his bile not for Mary, to whom he was sympathetic, but for the likes of Gardiner. So he presented Mary as a dupe of Gardiner's machinations. Although Fox's great works were constructed under Elizabeth, it's probably worth dealing with them briefly here, because they are to an extent the product of her reign, though the martyrs described therein are not restricted to the Marian persecutions. Boston's favourite son created the first edition of his work in 1563, and then continually added and edited it until the last version in 1583. His aim was to show Christian history as a manifestation of God's providence, and he held a complete belief in documentary evidence. As far as he was concerned, it could not then be gainsaid. And so he built an enormous body of evidence, which has helped with generations of scholars concerned to tear down his work. From the start, a contemporary described it as that huge dunghill of your stinking martyrs, which suggests a tough crowd. Having said that, he was as capable as any of ignoring evidence that didn't quite fit his case and is therefore far from immune from criticism. But the criticism actually made the acts and monuments stronger over time because he tended to react to the criticism and improve the product as a result. By the time he was finished, the Book of Martyrs was absolutely gargantuan. 2,300 pages big, bigger than the Bible. And it was enormously popular, both with the public and with the Elizabethan church, who ordered it placed in every church. It is impossible to really understand the history of England after the death of Mary without understanding that, when added to the Tyndale's Bible and Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, Fox's Book of Martyrs created a rubric of Protestant belief and an articulation of persecution that kept the memory fresh. Which brings us to Mary's legacy, because Fox was in a way simply an articulation of one of her legacies, or at least a legacy to which she contributed, the demonisation of Catholicism. This is a division in English history which is most significant and will have all sorts of consequences. One of the great debates about Mary is whether her attempt to bring England back to Rome was working or not, and most recently the argument has been, but of course it was, it was simply Mary's unfortunate early death and the lack of an heir that scotched it. And I must admit that when I set out reading about Mary's reign, I started out with this premise, that in the end, Catholicism would have been re-established in England, that it was only a matter of time before it happened. After all, I crudely reasoned, we've gone from Catholicism to some sort of Protestant halfway house under Henry, to full-blooded Protestantism under Edward, back to Catholicism under Mary, back to Protestantism under Elizabeth. We know well the massive impact the monarch can have, both from Henry VIII's example at home and from examples abroad. Take Austria, for example, heavily Protestant by 1580s, but with a programme of repression and persecution and the departure of 100,000 people, back to being staunchly Catholic by the 17th century. However, I am inclined to favour Peter Marshall's conclusions, helped along by the not-very-historical fact that he managed to avoid the tiresome confessionalism that bedevils the debate. Let me tell you, I'm not looking at any one particular side. Some of the stuff written by Protestant historians in the 19th century in particular is genuinely horrifying. Marshall rather ducks it, I had to say, though, 
by going for the how can we know approach. But he makes the point that the impact of Mary's reign is to change both Protestantism and Catholicism, that there emerged, in Marshall's words, a more articulate, combative and committed Roman Catholicism, which now faced a more determined, doctrinaire Protestant movement, and one which had now divorced itself somewhat for its justification from the royal supremacy, and now saw the royal supremacy as secondary to what they saw as the laws of God. Now this is a cop-out, I suppose. It still seems to me that the balance of probabilities are that in the end, it was who controlled the levers of the state that would count, and in time, England would once more have been fully Catholic. But what we also know for sure is that if Mary had done her sister in or had an heir, there would have been much pain ahead, in all probability to rival the almost unimaginable brutalities of the religious wars in France in the 16th and 17th centuries. And indeed, there would be trouble even for Elizabeth, though on a scale vanishingly small compared to the French experience. And I now feel the need to polish the whole thing off with a summing up, which means that I can scratch another itch. In evaluating the scale of the Marian persecutions, a number of mitigations are frequently advanced for Mary, Poole and her royal council. The total verifiable sum under Mary comes to 284 burnings, of whom 56 were women and a further 28 who died in prison before they could be burned. The people who died came from all walks of life. Now the historian Robert Tickler wrote of this that some 290 in four years seems a small number compared with the thousands slaughtered in the name of some version of the true faith in nearly all parts of Europe, including Scotland, in the same period. It's also been pointed out that executions were a common part of life, as I have already covered, and that society believed in the importance of conformity and unity in religion, which is utterly true, of course. There's also a line that Mary was actually relatively gentle, so Professor Eamon Duffy refers to the Spanish complaints that Mary was too gentle to Wyatt's rebels. And finally, there's the constantly rolled-out statement about Henry and the 200-plus executions of the Pilgrimage of Grace, and Elizabeth's brutality towards the northern rebels, which lies in the future for us, but where 900 were executed. And of course, the killer line, Duffy's outraged cry that although Elizabeth burned nobody, she went on to strangle, disembowel and dismember more than 200 Catholic priests and lay people during the rest of her reign, yet no one calls Elizabeth bloody Elizabeth. The point about all of this is that as far as I can see, it's simply polemic, a partisan attempt to wash Mary's reputation clean. The thousands that Titler refers to are events like St Bartholomew's Day in 1572, when between five and 10,000 were slaughtered in France but these are not judicial executions, they were murders by a mob. Mary, in fact, executed 150 of Wyatt's rebels, a far higher proportion of the rebels than Elizabeth's northern rebels, and way more as a proportion than Henry executed in the Pilgrimage of Grace. And anyway, to compare rebels against the state with religious executions is to compare apples with oranges, and contemporaries would have made a clear distinction themselves. The comparison with Elizabeth is particularly galling and unfair, if I may express some irritation. The context is entirely different. All but 90 of the executions in her reign were after the excommunication of Elizabeth by the Pope, and the legitimisation, therefore, of her assassination, 
and where waves of Catholic priests were consciously sent into England in a diplomatic climate of existential threat for England, where such priests could be legitimately viewed as treasonous and political enemies of the state. No one should doubt the courage, integrity and intelligence of those priests who gave their lives for something they believed in deeply, where they went or were sent in full knowledge of the consequences. The other simple point, of course, is Elizabeth's reign is over 45 years rather than six. The point about all of this is that what I have been and will continue to be is at pains to avoid the excessive painting of Mary as this kind of weird, mad caricature of a person that ignores her many positive characteristics. Her loyalty, patriotism, sense of duty, her generosity, her effectiveness in many areas of government and all in the context of her hideous upbringing and the personal tragedy of her lack of children. She was a perfectly decent and competent monarch and administrator and should be credited with the establishing of the right of women to rule in England. But that more balanced evaluation of, and sympathy for, Mary cannot obscure the fact that religious persecution that she unleashed, largely due to the extremity of her personal convictions, was unprecedented in English history. And by one calculation, by Professor John Coffrey, it amounted to 10% of the total heresy executions in Latin Christendom between 1520 and 1565. G.R. Elton's judgment that her reign was exceptionally bloody is not unfair. The greatest wound that Mary inflicted on Catholicism in England, though, was to associate it with foreign domination, with Philip, the Spanish and the Empire. As I think I've said before, I waver back and forth on the marriage to Philip and you can absolutely argue that marrying into foreign royal families was perfectly normal. But the context of a reigning queen marrying a monarch of a foreign, much more powerful regime with all the complications of early modern views of gender relationships turned out to be particularly disastrous. And it's not as though Mary was not warned. Her reliance on Renard and Charles V was simply extraordinary we can stack up a whole load of positives. In terms of administrative competence, her council worked absolutely fine. The navy remained an effective tool under her governorship. Although she held a traditional view of the relationship between husband and wife, Mary was perfectly capable of separating that from the needs of state, and she showed that several times, and Philip was forced to endure a status that scratched at his soul. But her record here is certainly not spotless. In the end, she did allow England to be dragged into a pointless war purely to keep her husband happy and because she told Parliament her wife ought to be obedient to her husband. So it's a mixed record. But in the end, too often, she sublimated the needs of the state to her own desires, like daughter, like father, you might say, and particularly sublimated the state to her own conscience. To end on a positive note, one of her great achievements was to embed the idea of queenship, although it's worth noting that Elizabeth had not then gone on to be relatively popular, Queen might have had a pretty poor reputation. But Elizabeth was popular enough and was able to profit from the battles that Mary had won before her, that queens were the equal of kings in power and dignity in every way. Mary also proved herself very aware of the value of political consensus and agreement, and by and large she carried her parliament with her, there were a couple of areas of contention, but by and large it was a positive relationship, and the power of Parliament was once again, therefore, greatly enhanced. Its right to legislate on matters of religion, but also about royal marriage, was fully confirmed. The super summary then, and here I am trying really, really hard 
to avoid the balance sheet approach which people now object to. Though actually, it's not quite right phrase, is it? There's nothing wrong with the most of the balance sheet, a list of impacts. It's the P&L approach, I suppose. The thing that tries to come up with a summary figure at the end, profit or loss, overall good, overall bad, profit, you know, or loss. And I take the point. How does one consider the relative value of the lives of 294 people and associated terror with, say, the establishment of queenship on an equal footing as kingship? The two are simply not comparable. This will prepare the way for conversations about Oliver Cromwell and the British Empire, things like that. So, I hereby give notice that I will try to avoid the net operating income bit at the end. I expect to fail. The temptation to have a who's the best English leader ever is pretty much overwhelming at any point of night or day. But look, we can only strive for perfection and beg for forgiveness if we fail. Here endeth the lesson. Please turn to your hymn books. So, the super summary for me then is that that old view of Mary as some sort of unbalanced, needy loser who bequeathed a poorly governed mess to Elizabeth who with her good Protestants cleaned it all up is almost entirely wrong. But equally, to go for double or quits and establish her as some squeaky clean paragon is just as daft. She made critical mistakes which left a legacy of division and her reign failed by her own yardstick. Mary had a hard life and is worthy of much sympathy. She was a more effective monarch than she has been credited with. But she also left the memory of Catholic persecution and its association with foreign powers which would warp English politics. We need to hold these things both in our minds at the same time. You may now mark me and tell me that I have been responsible for P&L history. In two weeks' time, we will return to a suite of episodes about aspects of social history in the Tudor century. We'll talk about the population growth and economic change, but also about the politics of the household and the parish. We'll cover something about sexual and moral regulation, which was so much a part of early modern English society. And then, around mid-November, we will return to the 25-year-old Elizabeth wowing the crowds of London and start the reign of one of England's most iconic leaders. Thank you all for your reviews and comments, but most of all for listening, and I hope very much you're having as much fun listening as I am writing. Good luck everyone, and see you in a fortnight. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.